Today's scripture is found in 2 Chronicles, all of chapter 1, which you can find in the Black Bibles on page 359. 2 Chronicles, chapter 1. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in all Israel, the heads of fathers' houses. And Solomon and all the assembly went with him, went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out, And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night, God prepared, appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now the wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before his people, for who can govern his people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I also will give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who who were before you, and none after you shall have the like." So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting, to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kiwi, and the king's traders would buy them from Kiwi for a price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Likewise, through them, these were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Good morning. Good to be with you all. Uh, let's pray and we'll, we'll dive into the text. Father, we love you. We come into your presence because of Jesus and the finished work of Christ. We exalt your name this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the scripture that you have revealed yourself and made yourself known to us. God, I ask this morning that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of knowledge in you that we might have a greater capacity to know and love and obey you in all of our lives. Would you come and make much of Jesus this morning, make much of his kingdom, make much of his glory for his sake, we ask. Amen. Amen. So over the past season, as a church, we've been working our way through first and second chronicles. We've been uh, taking a slight break for the last couple of weeks, but we jump back in uh, to Second Chronicles this morning. Uh, we've done this as a church, as we've sought to understand and strengthen and uh, establish the purposes that God has for us as a spiritual family. In this season, as we've 
sensed a call from the Lord to build his house. Just want to give you a quick review and overview of where we've been in 1 Chronicles and then what to expect in 2 Chronicles before we dive into this text this morning. Uh, for, for your review, letter B, the books were written to a group of Jewish exiles who had been taken away into captivity uh, for a period of 70 years under the Babylonians, and they had come back to Israel with the charge to rebuild God's house. And so they walk back into the situation with the city of Jerusalem destroyed and the temple of God destroyed, and they had a task before them to rebuild and reorder God's purposes in their city. And these books are a retelling of Israel's history with a particular view toward strengthening them in that task. This is uh, uh, the purpose of these books. Look at letter C. Throughout First Chronicles, the, the centerpiece of the book was King David's desire to build a dwelling place for the Lord. David uh, possessed a unique revelation of the need for God to have a place where he could rest and dwell among his people. This was built on David's unique revelation of the place of worship and prayer at the heart of God's purposes and God's people. So David had this vision to see a house established for God where God would be worshiped and exalted at the very center of God's people and his purposes. And that was, he ordered so much of his life around this. Uh, it consumed his life, his leadership. It dictated how, how he ordered uh, so many things around him. Letter D, however, God did not allow David to build the temple, right? David has this heart cry to build the temple, but God stands against him and does not allow him to follow through on this desire. Uh, rather, he comes to David and makes a covenant with David and says, I'm going to uh, draw forth from your line uh, a house of kings to, to seek me and establish my purposes in the world. Your son is going to be the one that builds the house. And then the rest of First Chronicles uh, outlines and narrates the remarkable extent to which David sought to prepare Solomon for the task of building the temple. So we see him gather resources and administrate uh, the people needed and uh, establish the exhortation of how they're to live and how the people respond. That's what's been happening in First Chronicles. So as we turn into the second part of this book, uh, and we come to Second Chronicles, I want you to uh, essentially know as we step into this season, there's two primary major sections or themes worked out within the book. The first is we're, uh, we actually see the narration of Solomon build the temple. So the first seven chapters are Solomon's purpose to build the temple and uh, consecrate it as the place for God to dwell among his people. And then the rest of 2 Chronicles is the outworkings of patterns that come from disobedience and renewal, right? So the author of Chronicles tells the story of the kings from David's line with a specific view toward how do they obey or disobey establishing worship at the center or the heartbeat of God's people. For this portion, conformity to the pattern that David established is the basis of a king's success or failure among God's people. Here's a helpful uh, verse for you as you seek to understand what's going on in 2 Chronicles. Uh, this is the telling of when Hezekiah reordered God's people around the rightly established worship. He stations Levites in the house of the Lord. And we see this happened according to the commandment of David and Gad, the king's seer, Nathan, the prophet. Why? Because this commandment was from the Lord. 
right? So this is given from God as to be the way that the people of God were to order their lives together as his people. And what we see in Second Chronicles is when they forsake that way, when they turn and they run after the gods of the nations, or they get caught up in worshiping other things, uh, they, they, they walk in disobedience and the disfavor of God falls upon them and things break down. But every time they seek the Lord in a posture of repentance and they renew a spirit of wholehearted seeking his face in worship, God visits them with a season of reprieve and renewal. And so we're gonna see that work itself out through the books, uh, the, the latter part of this book. But this morning, uh, before we get to the building of the house or the pattern that's going to unfold, we have this beautiful introductory uh, story that shows what Solomon does at the very beginning in this period of transition, when it transitions from David to Solomon. And so what I want to do this morning is just walk through these first couple sections in the text and call us this morning to a pursuit of the Lord around the growing in wisdom and the knowledge of God. So look at Roman numeral two. What we see immediately is Solomon's desire to pursue or seek the Lord. The chapter begins with a summary statement, transitioning us from the narrative uh, about the kingdom of David to the kingdom of his son, Solomon. And we get these summary statements outlined in verse one. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, meaning he, he settled in, he, he took his place to lead the people. We see two other aspects. The Lord, his God, was with him and he made him exceedingly great. So these, these summary statements are going to define the narrative of Solomon as it unfolds. Go to page two. So immediately we see Solomon gathering the leaders of the people of Israel, right? He, he takes the people much like his father David had done and he establishes himself and he sets the tone at the very beginning about what his kingdom is gonna be like, how the rule in Israel under his leadership is going to be. This is a remarkably profound and important moment, right? The, the guy has just ha uh, handed the baton uh, to him. He's received it. He's established in his kingdom. And the first thing that he does is going to set a great tone for the rest of his kingdom. And so what he does is he calls Israel and he sets out to seek the Lord through a posture of responding to him. I don't want you to miss this. Okay. The latter part of first Chronicles has been nothing but David getting Solomon ready to do a task to accomplish something. Solomon knows what the task is, right? Can you imagine being David's son, right? David is consumed with this vision and he keeps telling Solomon over and over and over again, I can't imagine dinnertime conversations. Boy, I can't do what I wanna do, but I'm getting you ready. Boy, not my day, it's your day. Boy. It's not my day, it's your day. I mean, just can you imagine how many of you feel pressure from your father, right? Like Solomon has this holy pressure from his father that he's known for years and all of these resources and all of this time and all this energy and all this instruction, Solomon takes the baton and you would imagine the first thing he would do is get to work. It's time, right? But what does Solomon do? He gathers the people and he seeks the face of God. He wants to set the precedent of what the activity and the fulfillment of the promise is going to look like in his day is going to be responding to the Lord by seeking him. This is in direct actual obedience to David's final charge to Solomon that we saw a while back when we were in 1 Chronicles 28. See this with me. Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. 
But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. So we walk through this first portion of the text and we see Solomon set out to pursue the Lord as the first uh, action of his kingship. I want you to just notice four things really quickly about this reality. The first thing is, this is the first pursuit of Solomon, right? The structure of the narrative gives a real weight to this. Solomon's first pursuit to respond to the Lord. Rather than immediately setting out to accomplish the task of building the house, Solomon seeks the face of God. This is really important for us. It's going to set out the tone of so much of what we're going to see unfold again and again in 2 Chronicles. That when the people order their lives around seeking the Lord, he responds with his favor and grace towards them. And so this needs to establish the life of God's people is this first pursuit. I think this is rooted in Solomon's understanding that it's ultimately the Lord that will bring success to the labors of his people, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. That's Solomon's words in Psalm 127. Solomon writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Unless God is at work in our endeavors, unless the spirit of God animates the life of his people as they set out to do the work, we do it in vain. And Solomon knows that. And so the first thing he does when he takes responsibility for leading the people of God is we're going to turn our faces to seek the Lord. We're not gonna get busy first. We're going to run hard after him. The second thing I want you to notice is this is a clear pursuit. Now, what I mean by that is one of the striking realities that I find about this narrative, and I I wanna do some, a little application for us as believers, is the clarity with which Solomon turns to seek the Lord. Did you feel that in the reading of it? I don't know if you did. There is a real concrete way that Solomon sought the Lord. I think a lot of times as believers, when we hear the idea of seek the Lord while he may be found, it's this really nebulous idea, like we're wandering around in the dark, groping and hoping to find something, right? We don't really know where to go. We may not have a map. It's just like this game of hide and seek that I'm not really sure if I'm gonna be able to find the Lord. That isn't the biblical model of seeking. The biblical model of seeking is God wants to be found. And he wants to be found so much, he gives us concrete means that as we pursue those means, that's what it is to seek him. And so we see that here uh, as Solomon sets out to do very real concrete things. In the old covenant, this seeking the Lord happened at the altar of sacrifice in the tent of meeting. That's what we saw. It says, uh, I don't know if you caught it a bunch of times, the word there in this narrative. Uh, I'd encourage you to go back and read it. It says, you know, the, the altar was there. The tent of meeting was there. They had this there. This is there where it was. It's, it's, over and over in the narrative, uh, circle that, there's a real concreteness to what Solomon is doing. However, for us in the New Testament, the place where we seek the Lord is by coming to Jesus in faith, approaching God's throne in boldness because of what Jesus has done. Okay, so we're not wandering around in the dark, groping for something, right? We come to the Lord, with, humble, with a humble heart of faith through the means that he has given, right? So he has given us very concrete means to seek him. I just want you to sense and know this. This is not obscure. It's not far off. God has revealed himself to us in his word. This is a concrete means that he has given us to seek him. 
He has given us a spiritual family to be a part of. We are seeking his face right now as we're gathered, as we come to the communion table, as we participate in the sacraments. God has established real means that are concrete to seek him. So utilize those. Utilize those. When God says, seek my face, we order our lives, time, energy, pursuits, around the means that he has given to us. They're very concrete. They're not ambiguous or unclear. Okay, so we have a first pursuit, a clear pursuit. Number three, the third thing I want you to see here is this is an extravagant pursuit. They offer a thousand burnt offerings. We see this in verse six. That's a lot of animals. It costs a lot of money. It's a lot of time. It's really bloody, really messy, right? This is is wrangling cattle and things like that. But this is is a big deal. This isn't just haphazard. There is a cost involved in this. There is a focus involved in this that I, I think should shape how we see pursuing the Lord, right? Solomon does not come to the tent of meeting seeking the Lord empty-handed. The extravagance of his offering is highlighted by the chronicler. Earlier, David had given us this kind of paradigm, right? He said, I will not offer the Lord something that costs me nothing, right? These offerings are not the sacrifices that were given for forgiveness, right? These are free will offerings back to the Lord that are offered in a heart of faith and desire. Lastly, this is an assembled pursuit. I'm not gonna spend much time there, but Solomon doesn't do this alone. That's the point there. So this is the first thing he does. It's really clear where he goes. It's extravagant in its cost, and he does it together with the people. Okay, go to page three. So in a remarkable response here, they go through this uh, pursuit. They go up to Gibeon. They offer these thousand bulls um, as burnt offerings to the Lord as a pleasing aroma. In response to this, the Lord appears to Solomon that night. He visits him. He shows up in response to this. And we see this in verse seven uh, through 13, that the Lord comes to Solomon and asks him what he desires. What are you seeking after? What do you desire? What do you want? Right, he shows up in verse seven. And that night, God appeared to Solomon and asks him, ask what I should give to you. What is it that you desire? Solomon begins his prayer by calling to mind the steadfast love of God and his promises to David. I love that in this prayer, Solomon reminds both God and himself of who God is. Right? Did you catch this? Look at, uh, look at verses eight and nine. Solomon says to God, God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father. This is who you are. This is what you're like. You are the God who loves to demonstrate steadfast love and mercy. You've made me the king in this place. Now let what you have promised to my father be fulfilled. Right? This is who you are and this is what you've done. This is what you promised to do. Would you be who you are and fulfill what you promised to do? Solomon then requests to receive wisdom and knowledge from the Lord so that he might appropriately lead God's people. He asks for these things in order that he might go in and come out before the people. This phrase, I I just want you to catch this phrase. We may come back to it or not. This phrase is really important. Essentially, the the reality of this phrase is shorthand for being able to walk out faithfulness to God without bowing to the pressure of people. That's what this means. He says, I need wisdom and I need knowledge in order to, as I walk in and out before the people, when I live my life in the eyes of others, 
that their evaluations and opinions and the pressures and the, the, the weights that they push down upon me, they do not get really big in my eyes. And I don't move or get caught off track by the fear of man. That's what that phrase is shorthand for. Rather, Solomon rightly seeks to order his life around the fear of the Lord. So I want to look at wisdom and knowledge and spend the rest of our time there looking at these realities and why it is so important that Solomon asks for these and then utilize that as a portrait for us of our first pursuit of the Lord seeking to grow in wisdom and the knowledge of God. So what are these things that Solomon asks for? Look at letter D, wisdom. This wisdom is the ability to apply God's truth and God's ways in specific situations and circumstances, right? So it's one thing to know the truth about who the Lord is. It's one thing to know the commandments of the Lord. It's a whole other thing to know how to apply those things in my life today. I don't think there's a lot of you in the room. There's a few of you in the room. Raising teenagers, right, is a wonderful place where I get to regularly come up against my lack of wisdom, right? This place where I go, I have all these values, all this knowledge, all this understanding, and I've never thought of that before. How in the world have I not thought of this before? I'm a human. I'm a person. I was a teenager once. How did I not think of this? And how do I apply my knowledge, my values, my ways uh, that live up under God? How do I apply them to this situation? That's what wisdom is. You all feel that in all sorts of places, right? Should I stay in the job that I'm in? Where do we send my kids to school? Where do I, how do I relate to these people around me? Do I bless them in this situation? Do I confront that thing in them that I'm seeing? Where do I uh, spend my time, energy, resources in my life? You're asking these kind of questions all the time. Wisdom is the ability to take the truth and the knowledge of God and apply today. What do I do? How do I order my life up under God's truth and God's ways? Because I don't know if the last time you guys read it, in the Bible, there is no commandment about how much cell phone use is appropriate or not. Right? I, unless I'm missing it in there somewhere, there is no thou shalt not about that. There's no thou shalt not about, we all would love the law, right? We would love it. How do you spend your money? How do you allot your time? We would all love that. If somebody just showed up, God just appeared and said, okay, here it is. Here's your budget. Spend this amount here, this amount here, this amount here. Here's your time. Spend this here, spend this here, serve here. Don't when, you, when they ask you about this, don't worry. Uh, I don't expect you to do that. Don't feel the pressure of it. Like how many of us would be uh, blessed by that law? Well, we don't have it. So what do we need? We need wisdom. We need wisdom of how to take those things and apply them in our lives. So to grow in wisdom is related to possessing how does God see the world? How does God evaluate the world? So that we might orient our lives, right? Our time, our resources, our efforts, our activities around what he defines as important. What he defines as valuable. What he defines as lasting. Letter E, the scriptures relate the growth of wisdom to possessing the fear of the Lord. Okay, so this is a fundamental truth of the scripture. Our wisdom is proportionate to our growth in the fear of the Lord. It is very clear from the scripture. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. This is where wisdom starts. If you want wisdom, we need to ask the Lord to increase 
the fear of the Lord in our lives. Now you might be going, I don't really know what the fear of the Lord is. It's like one of those Christian phrases that people throw around and I'm not really sure what it means. Well, let me give you what I think the Bible teaches about the fear of the Lord. I think it is more than just like an experience. Like you might think the fear of the Lord is this like trembling feeling that you get in the awe and the majesty of God's transcendence. And though there's realities to that in the scripture where we see people um, tremble in their souls under the weight of how weighty and majestic and transcendent God is. I actually think the fear of the Lord is a set of beliefs that are alive in us. I don't think they're just beliefs you check off. They're beliefs that are alive in us that orient how we see and view the world and how we orient our lives in it. So let me give you the set of beliefs what I think they are. Number one, God is the sovereign creator of everything. The fear of the Lord begins with the belief that God is real and that he created everything. And because he created everything, he is the Lord over everything. The way that I'll, I'll say it this way is, because he created everything, he's in charge. Or, said even differently, he's the boss. You used to tell our kids all the time, you're really important in this family, you're not the boss. You're not the boss. You're not the boss. You're not the boss. We need to be told regularly, you're very important. You are not the boss. Belief in God as the sovereign creator establishes he's in charge. Okay, that's number one. The second thing closely related to that is because he's in charge, his evaluation of things is ultimate. It is right. It is, <laughs> my, my kids hate this phrase. It is what it is. It might be the only place where that phrase is really right. Because God evaluates something, it is that. God's evaluation is generative in its ability. Something is good because God declares it to be. Something is not good because God declares it to be. What God evaluates as good or not good is good and not good. That is ultimate. And it's held up in his own character, his own being, his own ways. Okay, so we have to see that his evaluation alone is what matters. So God is the sovereign creator over everything. He's in charge. God's evaluation is ultimate. If he says, it goes. That's, that's what we have to come to, right? These two truths are the first ones upon which the fear of the Lord is built. Third, the third truth is God sees and cares about our lives. Okay, so it's one thing to say God is sovereign and he's in charge. It's the second thing to say because of that, his evaluations, what's right and what's wrong are. We then go another layer and say that God cares about what happens in this world. He sees it all and he cares. It matters to him. He's not distant and aloof and like he set the world and forgot about it and it's just going on through this process. God sees and cares about this world and our lives and the lives of those in this world. It matters to him. It's not neutral. He sees it and it, he cares about it. And then number four, God will evaluate our lives according to his perfect standards, his glorious, righteous evaluation. So he has an evaluation. He sees our lives. He cares about our lives. And one day, every person, he is going to evaluate your life on the basis of his evaluations and his standards. The composite of those four things, as we hold to them, and I don't just mean checking them off a box, right? Like you could go through and go, sure, 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 sure. 
I mean to the extent that those truths become alive in our soul, we will possess what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Because what does that do, right? If those four things are true, what's the first question you probably want to ask in that point? What are his evaluations? And how does my life conform to those evaluations? That's wisdom, okay? Then you start pursuing wisdom. Why, why does this matter? Because God cares. He has a, 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 an evaluation system. This is what we have to come up under. Each of us will give an account for that evaluation system. Then we go, what is that evaluation system? And how do I live according to it? Now, here's where this produces the fear of the Lord. And the Bible says the fear of the Lord is clean. Meaning it produces a purity of life as it works in us. That's Psalm 19.9. Now, I just want to say two ways that this works itself out as we experience the fear of the Lord. For those who are not in Christ Jesus, the fear of the Lord produces, it should produce a, a, a trembling feeling of how might I become right with God, right? If there is a holy God whose standard is perfect, we need to ask the question, can I live up to that standard? And the Bible makes it really clear that you cannot. No one can. No one can live up to that standard. And here's a news flash: No matter how hard you try to run away from it, you already know that. You already know that. It's been worked in you. You have a conscience and you've never, you have not lived according to your conscience at every moment of your life. You know that you have not lived up to that standard. And the glorious offer of the gospel in Jesus is that God made a way for his son to live up to the standard so that by faith in him, he might account that righteousness to you, if you believe in him. His life, his death, his resurrection. That's the glorious news of the gospel. So if you're outside of Christ, if you don't believe in Christ, you should feel the fear of the Lord in, how can I be right with this, with this God? If God is real, if he cares, if his evaluation's all that matters, and I'm gonna stand before him and give an account for my life according to that standard, you should ask the question, how do I get right with him? And the answer is in and through Christ Jesus alone. Now, for those in Christ, the fear of the Lord does not produce a cowering fear for us, like a drawing back, right? Uh, we experience in Christ the lavishing of God's love upon us and the biblical testimony is that the love of God casts out a fear that trembles and draws back. That's, that's not what this is about in Christ. What this is about is I, I by faith, rest in a favorable evaluation of uh, before God in Christ. And now, because of his grace and because of my acceptance in him, I desire to be fully pleasing to him. That's what the fear of the Lord does in a life of a Christian. It says, I want, to, I want everything in my life to line up with what he gave to have in me. It's what Paul says when he says, um, I, I strive toward knowing Christ uh, so that uh, what he desired in purchasing me might be made known in me. That's what it does in the life of a Christian. So Solomon asks for wisdom first. Then he asks for knowledge. And I want you to catch this, letter G. Throughout the scripture, prayer for knowledge is often shorthand for growing in the knowledge of God. This is primarily about living in relationship with God as the source of all knowledge. The glorious reality of eternal life is that we are brought into the possibility of knowing God. All right, go to page four.
So for us, here's, here's my hope today. I want to call us as a people in the season that we're in, both in the world, the place we find ourselves, and in the life of our church. As we've talked a lot about what God's doing here and how we're working towards that, I, I want us to take a break with 1 Chronicles 1 and say, I want us to be a people about seeking the Lord first and the content of that seeking, I want to stir us up by the word to pursue wisdom and the knowledge of God. That this is like what we're laying hold of in this season. That we're asking God to conform us to his ways and to give us the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. Letter A, as we find ourselves at a crossroad in human history, right? Both in the culture and in the church. If you're not aware of that, go back and listen to the last couple sermons. Uh, over the last three weeks, we've talked about that a lot. But we are at a crossroad in human history. And we are walking into um, situations that we don't have a roadmap for, right? There's, I, I don't know if you guys experience this all over the place, but it really does seem like with the uh, exponential growth of technology, the crazy movement of the world, how, how quickly things are being embraced and darkness isn't being embraced and how, how loud different voices are getting. I feel all the time like we walk up to a line and go, I don't know how to apply God's wisdom here right? How do we apply the knowledge of God and the truth of who he is and what he says is good and right and lasting? And I think that's happening all over the place, right? We're, we're finding it in our culture. I think we're experiencing it inside of the church. Churches are asking all sorts of questions about how do we engage with the world? What does mission look like? What does faithful witness look like? What does loving our neighbor look like? I mean, the, the questions are real, they matter, they're important, and it's not abundantly clear to everyone. And a lot of people have different opinions, right? So it's confusing, it's hard, and I do not believe the answer is to just try to find like new strategies or methods or ideas or programs in the midst of it. I don't think if we just come up with a better way of doing certain like programs as a church or ideas as a church or strategies that we're all of a sudden gonna be like able to stand faithful in the midst of the world that we're in. I think the only way for us is to be consumed with knowing God and filled with his wisdom. We need a living experience of the wisdom of God in our lives. Look at letter B. The prophet Daniel spoke of a day of extreme trial and he declared from God's heart that it would be people that knew God that were able to stand up and stand firm and know what to do. So do you want to know what to do in this season? Know God. That's the answer. First pursuit. Clear pursuit. Costly pursuit. Do we want to know how to stand firm in this season? Yes. Then we need desperately a revival of the knowledge of God and the fear of the Lord in our midst. We need to know God, know him, know what he's like, know what he's about, know what he's said. We need to have our root system go so deep in the knowledge of God that when the winds of the world are blowing around us, we have sure footing. This is the only answer. Look at letter C. Jesus spoke of days when lawlessness increased in the world in such a way that the love of many would grow cold. And I think that we're seeing this in, in, a, in a small way in our world right now, right? Lawlessness is increasing and people are growing cold. They are walking away from the things of God. 
It's in these times, the answer of Jesus to times of difficulty is who is the faithful and wise servant? Who walks before the Lord with fidelity? Who has wisdom? Who knows the Lord? Look at E. I want to delight in, this is letter D. I don't want us to miss this. Let me, let me say letter D. The mercy of God is free forgiveness apart from our works. Our lives are marked by his unmerited favor and his abundant mercy. He lavishes the power of his kindness on us in Jesus. Wisdom, however, does require us to seek his face in order to apply this grace given to our lives. Here's, here's a passage that I think needs to shape our imagination in this season. At the judgment seat, there will be Christians who suffer loss because they failed to pursue walking before the Lord with a heart of wisdom. These will experience glorious and infinite reality of God's mercy and God's saving power in Christ, but will actually experience real loss of potential blessing by building with materials that do not matter in eternity. Okay, so how do we make sense of free mercy and wisdom? Let me, let me give you an example and we'll try to apply it for just a second. This is, I hope, I hope a crazy example. Let's say tonight, I just get a bee in my bonnet, the Chiefs win, and I get excited. And I wanna, I wanna celebrate the Chiefs win by going and playing a few rounds at a table at that awesome steamboat thing that sits off the river. <laughs> so I, I, I show up, I sit down, I take my seat, I'm feeling alive, I'm on top of the world, I'm king of the world, right? And I lose everything, everything. Everything my family has, right? I can wake up tomorrow morning, run headlong into the mercy of Jesus and be fully accepted, free, confident before him in love. And my bank account will still be zero tomorrow morning. And that will have implications for my family's life for who knows how long, right? Real choices that have real implications for real life. Eternity will be like that. There will be places that as we build in this life, the, the image that Paul gives is that we've all been given a foundation of Jesus that we cannot earn, afford, uh, it's unmerited. And we all build on that foundation with materials, some with gold, silver, precious stone, some with wood, hay, stubble. We will all stand in the presence of the Lord one day and the fire of God's evaluation will touch our lives. What does not remain will be experienced as loss by us. God's word, here's, here's the difficult thing. God's word alone gives us God's evaluation standards. Our present success indicators in this world, money, size of your house, whatever, I, whatever you want to put in, reputation, all those realities, the success indicators that we ascribe value and worth to in this world, they are not good tools to see how we will do on that day. We would like that there would be a one-to-one -one correlation between my obedience to the Lord and the size of my bank account. We would like that. That would be much easier for us, but there's not. There is no one-to-one -one equation between walking out a spirit of wisdom before the Lord and the external success indicators that we infuse with meaning in this life. That means that the only way that we can pursue a life of wisdom is to learn what does God define as 
valuable. You want a couple places? Go read the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 3 to 12. They're very different than ours. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that are meek. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it goes on. You want to see uh, Matthew 6. What does God evaluate as success? Fidelity before his face when no one's watching. Everything where we would trumpet and evaluate and give credence to success and worth and value as people and we would love to laud it and get a good reputation for it now, God goes, I look when nobody's looking and I care about those things. So living for God's evaluation. Look at letter F. Paul, this is why I think Paul prays regularly that believers would grow in the knowledge of God and the ability to conform their lives according to his will. It's my prayer that your love would abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Hey, I don't know if you caught this in in the reading of it. You want to know the mark of growing in love for God? It isn't a feeling. It's not how much you feel accepted or what sentimental thing you feel in your emotions. Do you want to know the mark of growing in love for God? It's knowledge, discernment, and approving what God says is excellent. That is the marker that we're growing in the love of God. He prays a very similar thing in Colossians 1. I'll let you see that yourself. Here's where I want to close. Letter G. James exhorts believers to ask God for wisdom without fear and without shame. Here's a beautiful gift. James comes along and says, if any of you lack wisdom, which we all do, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? That know that they don't have what it takes in this world. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Do you know what that means? That means he doesn't take your face and shove it into your need. He doesn't take you by the neck and go, you were lacking, let me shove your face into it and put you to shame for it. He doesn't reproach you when you ask him. A different way of saying that is, he's a good father. He wants you to succeed in this. He wants to lavish his kingdom upon you. He says in his word, if you come and ask him for a fish, he's not gonna give you a serpent. If you ask him for bread, he's not gonna give you a stone. If you ask him for wisdom, he's not gonna hold your face in the fact that you need it. He's going to lavish it upon you in abundance. I promise you, I promise you, he is a good father who wants us to know him and to conform our lives around his ways. Amen.